Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 12. This week, we're going to be covering Joshua chapter 21, verse 1, through Judges chapter 17, verse 12. Now, as we begin this week, we'll start with chapter 20, because we didn't get a chance to cover that last week, and we will take care of it today, and we will move through Judges chapter 17. Now, back in Joshua chapter 20, um, we have some details of some of the names of the cities of refuge, and we've already taken a We've already talked a little bit about these cities, but now they are officially named. Kadesh is named in the tribe of Naphtali, Shechem in the tribe of Manasseh, and Hebron in the land of Judah. Outside the land, in the Transjordan area, there were also cities of refuge. Bezer in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in the tribe of Manasseh. And remember, the placement of these cities was such that no Israelite would have would have had to have traveled a far distance to get to one of them. They were all uh, close to one another in central areas where it would have been easy to get to them. Now, chapter 21 is about Levitical cities, and we've already talked about these cities as well. Because the tribe of Levi did not have land allotments, they were given cities throughout the land. The priests were also given Levitical cities, and so there were a total of 48 cities, and every city of refuge was a Levitical city. We're told from this passage that the priests received 13 cities spread out in Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The Levites received the rest, being split up between Aaron's descendants, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. Now, some cities had significance on multiple fronts. For example, Hebron was a Levitical city, a city of refuge, and a city that was given to Caleb as an allotment back in Joshua chapter 14. Now, for the Christian, the allotment of Levitical towns from each tribe illustrates the principle of returning to God a portion of what has been given to them, the principle of the tithe, we might say. These gifts are used to support others in need and to encourage the proclamation of faith in the church, namely led by the pastor and his leadership. Now, as you move into chapter 21, it finishes up the section of land allotments as the eastern tribes depart back to their lands. Now, there's a situation that arises with these eastern tribes wanting to worship God in their land, and the situation is quickly averted by Israel's leadership. In the final chapters of Joshua, they contain Joshua's farewell address. In chapter 23, Joshua reminds the people of their past blessings, and he also warns them of possible cursings if they don't obey the laws given to them. So if the people transgress the covenant, God will discipline them. And then as you move into chapter 24, we come to a more... Uh, sermon form or more plea for the people as Joshua speaks here. And Joshua speaks about God's acts on behalf of his people in the first part of the chapter. And then in the second half of the chapter, he asks the questions. He asks the question, the major question here at the end of the book, choose you this day whom you will serve. Will it be the gods that your father served or will it be the one true God? And so Joshua ends the book saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All right, that, finished up the, that finishes up the book of Joshua for us, and now we can move into the book of Judges. And we realize that Israel failed to follow Joshua's instructions, and what happens is, well, the book of Judges is what happens. Instead of every man following the Lord, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. There are a few things to keep in mind as we talk through Judges. First, the length of time for the period of the Judges is more than 300 years. 
so much larger than the book of Joshua, which may have only been 30 years. Second, some of the judges that ruled overlapped with one another. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that most judges ruled over a specific region or maybe a specific few tribes rather than the overall nation. Third, the divine commentary on the era of the judges is found in Psalm 106, verses 34 to 39. Let me say that again. It's found in Psalm 106, verses 34 to 39. And I would highly encourage you to read this as it gives you a synopsis of Israel's failure and the consequences of it. Again, that's Psalm 106, verses 34 through 39. Now, Judges picks right up where Joshua left off, with just a bit of overlapping. In Judges chapter 1, after Joshua dies, the tribes of Judah and Simeon are the most successful in driving out the Canaanites, but the other tribes were not so successful. Benjamin could not drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Ephraim could not, could only conquer Bethel. Excuse me. Manasseh had to leave much of its allotment to the Canaanites, as did Zebulun. Asher and Naphtali. Dan could not drive out the Amorites from the coastal areas and had to remain content with a small settlement in the hills. So many of the tribes weren't able to push out or to drive out all the inhabitants like God told them. So now in chapter 2, it's quite obvious that Israel was disobedient. They did not drive out the Canaanites like God instructed. Therefore, because of their disobedience, the angel of the Lord appears on the scene and informs them that he will not help them. In fact, he will leave the inhabitants in the land to be a snare to the nation as a means of disciplining them for their failure. However, in God's grace and mercy for his people, he decided to raise up judges to deliver Israel. This chapter, chapter 2, introduces us to the sin cycle or the cycle of the judges, which goes in six different stages. First, Israel would serve the Lord. Second, Israel sins and falls into idolatry. Third, Israel becomes enslaved to an enemy living in the land. Fourth, they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Fifth, God hears their cries and raises up a judge to deliver them. And sixth, the judge delivers Israel from her oppressors. Then, once we get to stage six, guess what? Israel goes back to stage one, and we repeat this cycle. In fact, this cycle is repeated seven different times throughout the book. Now, as you move down into chapter 3, chapter 3 gives us a bit more of information as to why God allowed the Canaanites to live among the Israelites. He lists four of them. So this is why God wanted them to still live in the land. Listen to what he says. He wanted to punish Israel for her idolatry, number one. Two, he wanted to test the Israelites' faithfulness to him and love for him. Three, he also wanted to give the new generation of Israelites experience in warfare. And fourth, God allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land so the land would not become wild before the Israelites were able to completely uh, subdue it. So there are some additional reasons. Now, as you get to chapter 3, verse 6, we get introduced to the judges. And the first judge, and his name is Othniel. He was the nephew of the famous Caleb. Othniel had already been named earlier in Joshua 15, and he had been named as a hero there. But he delivers the people from the king of Mesopotamia, and Israel has peace for a total of 40 years. This chapter also includes the second judge, and his name is Ehud. Israel had been under Moabite oppression for 18 years, and we are told that Ehud was a left-handed Benjamite. And you might ask why that's important. Well, the tribal name Benjamin means son of the right hand, which is certainly ironic. And also, many of the Benjamites were left-handed. 
Later on in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, we're told about the skill level of the left-handed Benjamites. So what the text is telling us from gathering all this information is that Ehud was a skilled warrior. And when he goes to meet King Eglon, he has a plan to kill him that allows him to successfully escape quietly. And once King Eglon, um, once his once the king's guard realizes what has happened, Ehud is long gone. And if you've never read how Ehud kills Eglon, I won't ruin it for you. I'll leave it for you to read there in chapter 3. Chapter 3 ends with Shamgar as the third judge, and it's likely that he judged towards the end of the reign of Ehud's judgeship in a smaller area or region. Chapter 4 introduces us to the one and only female judge, and her name is Deborah. The text tells us that Jabin, king of Hazor, had been oppressing Israel for 20 years, and Sisera was his military commander. Deborah sends orders to Barak to assemble an army for battle against Jabin, but Barak does not want to go to war against Jabin unless Deborah goes with him. She agrees to help, and together they go up against Jabin and his commander Sisera. Israel wins the battle, but Sisera, the commander, gets away on foot and wanders into a place that he thinks is safe. But here again, a woman steps up to do the job that a man should be doing. Jael, a woman, greets Sisera and invites him into to rest in her tent. And when he is resting, she kills Sisera. And again, I won't ruin the story of how she did it. You'll have to read the text there in chapter 4. The lesson from this chapter is that when a man doesn't want to lead in obedience to God's command, God uses two different women to get the job done. And then chapter 5 is labeled as the Song of Deborah, as it is a song of victory over Israel's enemies. Moving into chapter 6 through 9 introduces us to another judge, and his name is Gideon. Israel had been under Midianite oppression for seven years. Now what's unique about Gideon is that he received a call from God to his appointment as judge. This is not to say that no one else had a call from God to be judged, but Gideon and Samson are unique in that the angel of the Lord shows up to commission these two men for service. Also take note that Gideon and his reluctance to lead reminds us of Moses and his reluctance to lead. Now Gideon, we know, was from the tribe of Manasseh, and his first act as judge is when he destroys all the altars of Baal that his father Joash had made. He then proceeds to build an altar to the Lord in the place of the Baal altars. Well, the men of the city don't like what Gideon has done, but Gideon's father intercedes for Gideon before the men of the city do something rash. As Israel's enemies begin to assemble and Gideon calls Israel to battle, Gideon, for some reason, doesn't believe that God will be with him in battle against the enemy, and so he asks for a sign. On two different occasions, Gideon puts out a fleece and tests God. And the remarkable thing is that God responds to his tests. Gideon's fleece is not a sign of faith. It's in fact the opposite. It's not a search for God's will either. It's a desperate grasp for security by one who clearly knows God's will but is reluctant to do it. This would be like us today saying, Lord, do you really want me to pray? If you do, send me a sign. And then all of a sudden, your radio that you're listening to as you drive to work has a short commercial on it with a preacher who is emphasizing the need for every Christian to pray. Now, God might certainly be answering your request for a sign in this fashion, but it's more likely that if you are a believer in Christ, then you already know that it's God's will for you to pray and to commune with Him each day. The bigger question then is, what's preventing you from praying each day? 
Gideon should have already known that God was going to be with him. God told him he would be with him. As you move into chapter 7 and 8 of Judges, it continues the story of Gideon and the selection of troops for the upcoming battle. God tells Gideon that he has too many troops. God didn't want the people to boast in her abilities, and so God devises a way to whittle down the number of troops to just 300. And God gives Gideon and his 300 victory over the enemy. These Midianite kings flee, and Gideon pursues them, eventually killing both kings. And because because of all that happens, the people want to make Gideon their king. But he rejects their offer. Instead, Gideon would rather have some spoils from war, which proves to be the things that corrupts his heart. The final days of Gideon were filled, unfortunately, with failure and apostasy. Now, if Gideon won't take the kingship, then Gideon's son Abimelech accepts the offer in chapter 9. Abimelech kills all the competition, but one escapes. His name is Jotham. And verses 7 through 21 of chapter 9 is termed as Jotham's fable. And in this context, a fable is a parable with a moral. This truly is the first parable in the Bible. And the point of the parable is to highlight Abimelech's arrogance, his lack of qualifications to be king, his inability to provide protection to the people, and his thirst for power. You see, Abimelech only reigns for about three years, and he only really reigns in the area of Shechem. Eventually, God causes the men of Shechem to become unsatisfied with Abimelech, and they plot to get rid of him. Abimelech dies by having a millstone thrown around his neck, and his armor bearer finishes the job. Now, Abimelech wasn't a judge, but he was one of Gideon's sons. And you see how even a man in his ministry of a judge, that can have bad effects, bad consequences. Now, chapter 10 contains three more judges, real brief here, Tola, Jer, and Jephthah. Now, during the judgeship of Jephthah, the Philistines had been oppressing Israel for 18 years. And even though Jephthah was rejected by his brothers for being an illegitimate son, when conflict breaks out, the elders seek his help because of his military skill. And so Jephthah agrees to help and attempts the political route with the enemy first, but ultimately he's forced into the military route. At this point, Jephthah offers a vow to the Lord. The vow is that if the Lord would give him victory, then the first thing that comes out of his house when he returns will be dedicated to the Lord. Well, the Lord gave victory over the Ammonites, and when Jephthah returns, guess what? His daughter is the first thing that has come out and meets him. Now, some people believe that Jephthah actually sacrifices his daughter, but we know that sacrifice of a person was not permitted according to the law. And further, the word dedicated that some translations use is a better rendering. It's used in the context here of Judges chapter 11, and it relates not to a physical sacrifice, but to one of service to God. This is the same word used of Samuel, who is dedicated to the Lord by Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we know that Samuel wasn't sacrificed, but he was dedicated to service. The rest of the context there of Jephthah will help better understand, will help you better understand why we should think of that as being dedicated to the Lord, not a physical sacrifice. The judgeship of Jephthah continues in chapter 12 as an inner tribal conflict begins to break out between Ephraim and Manasseh. The Ephraimites complain that they were not called to battle again, 
And instead of being like Gideon, who appeases their egos, Jephthah goes to war with the Ephraimites, and 42,000 of them are killed. He even developed a strategy to prevent those who escaped the battle from safely returning home across the Jordan. And you can read about that unique strategy, as I won't ruin it for you there in chapter 12. Towards the end of Jephthah's reign, he judges Israel for six years after the war with Ammon. And in the end of chapter 12, highlights three more judges briefly, Ibzon, Elon from the tribe of Zebulon, and one more, Abdon from the tribe of Ephraim. That finishes out chapter 12, and now we head into chapter 13, which is the story of probably the most well-known judge, and his name is Samson. And so chapters 13 through 16 cover his period and his time of ministry. At the very beginning of chapter 13, we are told that Israel was under Philistine oppression for 40 years. As with Gideon, who had a call to judgeship, Samson also receives a call to judgeship. However, it's his parents that are visited by the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord tells them that Samson was to be dedicated to the Lord, a Nazarite from birth. As you move into chapter 14, you will read about Samson's marriage. This chapter tells us that he desired a Philistine woman as a wife, and his parents arranged for him to meet a suitable woman. But his parents did not know that this was part of Samson's plan to gain an opportunity to strike the enemy, the Philistines. On his way to talk to this woman, he destroys a lion with his bare hands. And he arrives in Timnath, talks to this woman, and finds that she is the right one for him. And so he leaves and goes back to tell his parents. Well, on his return back, he finds that same lion that he had torn apart previously. And now a swarm of bees had established a hive within its carcass. And so he dips his hand into the dead animal to get some honey from it. And in doing so, he violates his Nazarite vow. Furthermore, he gives some of the honey to his parents without telling them where this honey came from and thereby defiling them as well because it came from a dead animal. Truly, Samson was taking his privileged position for granted. He was acting entitled because of what he had rather because of what he had rather than being grateful for what he had. Well, the day of his wedding is here, and Samson offers up a riddle for the Philistines during the seven day wedding feasts, and he promises a new wardrobe to whomever can answer it, but the men can't answer it. They've got seven days, and they still can't answer it, and they press his fiancée to get the answer out of him. He tells his fiancée, and then she tells the people, and then Samson realizes what has happened, but he's true to his word, and he honors his promise of reward, and while he is out getting the reward, get this, his best man marries his fiance, while he's out getting the reward. Now, as you move into chapter 15, Samson uh, is about Samson's revenge on the Philistines. Samson's anger had cooled a little bit uh, since chapter 14, and he decided to return to Timnah and arrange for the completion of his marriage. But the woman's father didn't want to give her to him. And Samson was upset that the Philistines had treated him this way, even though he had done them no wrong. So he uses some foxes to burn up a grain field in retaliation. And once the Philistines find out what happens, guess what? They go after that woman and his father, essentially burning the house down with them inside. Samson flees then into the tribe of Judah's area. And instead of helping him, the men of Judah rebuke him for bringing the Philistines after them. His own people, the Judites, bind him up for the enemy to come and greet him. Come and get him, rather. But Samson escapes, and he will kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. 
Now, chapter 16 tells us that Samson flees to another Philistite town, one in Gaza, and there he falls for a woman named Delilah, and through his relationship with Delilah, he is tricked into revealing the source of his power, his uncut hair. And after he reveals the source of his power, he is taken captive by the Philistines, and his eyes are gouged out. And during a celebration to their false god, Dagon, the Philistines bring out Samson in order to mock him. And he is placed between two of the temple's pillars. And he prays to God and asks for one more feat of strength to push down the temple pillars. And God grants him the request and he kills more Philistines in his death than he did in his life. Now Samson's life is one of the greatest tragedies in history. His life should be a warning to every believer. He had many advantages and God chose him even before his birth. He received excellent training from godly parents who encouraged him to maintain his faithfulness to God. However, in all of this, Samson chose to yield to physical passions rather than maintain his dedication to the Lord. On the other hand, Samson can be an encouragement for us all. God willing can use people who are far from perfect. God is patient with his servants, even the ones who find themselves endlessly caught in the sin cycle. There is hope that God may yet again use his servants, whom he may have set aside because of their sins. It all depends on whether they truly repent and rededicate themselves to Him. Now, your reading for this week continues through chapter 17 of Judges, but I'm going to save that discussion of that chapter for next week because it's part of a bigger story in Judges 17 through 21. So that's it for this week. Email me any questions to BibleReading at LNBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.